By a show of hands, how many of you have never been on an airplane? My count is zero. Oh, we've got a few shy ones. So, yes, there are maybe one or two of you that are reluctant to admit in front of all of us that you have not embraced modern transportation. So, for those of you, this will be news. For the rest of you, you will know exactly what I'm talking about. When you ride on an airplane, prior to the departure of your flight, or while you're getting situated in the cabin, you get these instructions from the flight attendants. And these instructions are about your seatbelt, it's about the life raft that your seat cushion can become in case there's an accident in water, there's oxygen masks and how you should first give it to yourself and then to the loved ones that are small children next to you because they would be not served well if you were passed out from cabin pressure changes, etc., etc., I think one of my favorite, as Jerry Seinfeld has pointed out in some comedy sketches, when they so specifically point out where the exits are. Like, yeah, they're somewhere there and there and there. And the whole routine becomes somewhat familiar, doesn't it? The more you fly, the more you're tuning these people out. So for some of you that maybe have never experienced this wonderful set of instructions, this, this is like, oh, okay, this was helpful to know. I, I need to know what's going to happen in case we land in the water, and that's maybe why I've never been on an airplane yet, because I'm afraid of what could happen if the plane doesn't make it. The reason I bring this up is because I think as we conclude the book of Hebrews for our last and final message of over 30-some weeks now, it would be easy for you to see these words as you read through them and treat them like I'm your flight attendant today. You know, like, let's just tune him out. I don't think there's really much exciting to say here. We've pretty much heard a lot of these things before. And are these really that helpful of instructions? And I started to think more about this flight attendant image. You know, the instructions that these men and women are giving are pretty important instructions. They could be the, the difference between your life and your death. The problem is, is a lot of us just assume that they're not relevant or we've heard them before and that we probably won't need to put them in practice that moment or the next couple hours. At least we hope not, right? But here's the thing. The instructions that I'll be giving you, they might be familiar to some of you or they might be brand new. But you will use them, or at least you should. And these instructions are, in fact, not just physical life and death, but eternal spiritual life and death instructions. So friends, I urge you to not treat me as your flight attendant, but to think seriously about what you're about to hear as we conclude these final words. Some of them might seem like they're just P.S. notes at the end of a letter, some sort of, oh yeah, let's just skip and skim over this. But I think that if we Give them the time and attention that they deserve. If you don't tune these words out, that you might find them to be instructive for today. That you could put them into practice. So let's turn for the last and final time, at least in the near future, to the book of Hebrews. Chapter 13, that can be found on page 1010 in the black Bibles that are around you. 
We're going to be considering verses 17 through 25, the final section of this, what we could call letter slash sermon, because it's my understanding that this is a sermon message, a message that was given or wanted to be given by the one that's writing it, and that he was unable to maybe deliver it, so he sends it in mail because he couldn't do it in person, which we'll see more clearly here. I'm going to outline our scriptures with the ABCs, which would be further reason for some of you to think, okay, this is going to be really basic, the ABCs. And in some senses, they will be, but I trust that after you hear them, you will find them useful and fruitful for your life. So let's read these verses, and let's see the ABCs of prayer and the gospel. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released with whom I shall see if he comes to you, if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you all. The ABCs of prayer from these verses of Scripture. A, the access of prayer. B, the basis of our prayer. And C, the content of our prayer. I want to first make the point that the gospel opens the access to our prayer. First, that the gospel opens the access to our prayer. First, who is it to whom we are praying? Who do we have access to? This might sound, again, elementary. It might seem basic. But friends, prayer begins and ends here. Who you're thinking about, as A.W. Tozer said, is probably the most important thing about you when you think about God. Our writer has instructed in verse 18 to pray, and then in verse 20 and 21, he actually models for them prayer. So that's why it's the gospel and prayer this week. We're going to consider prayer both in the exhortation to pray, but then also in the model of how he then would pray for them. And notice first how he prays for them. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. You realize all of that first half, this is one sentence, verses 20 and 21, one Greek sentence, the whole first half of it, he's not asking for anything. He's beginning with praise. He's beginning with reminding himself and his hearers who it is that we are praying to, the God of peace. Not that God gives peace, no, that He is peace. 
The God who brought and raised Jesus from the dead. You realize that most of the time in the New Testament, it doesn't just tell us that Jesus rose from the dead. It says that God raised him, brought him from the dead. It's actually the same phrase we see in the Old Testament about bringing up Israel out of slavery. Bringing up Jesus, the one who delivers all of us from slavery of our sins through the resurrection. The great shepherd of the sheep. Not just any shepherd, the great shepherd. Psalm 23, like shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down by green pastures. That shepherd, the great of all shepherds. The promise keeping no matter what the cost kind of God. Because of the blood of the eternal covenant, we can come and have access to this God. He will give everything that it takes to keep his promise, including the blood of his son. And then we see the way he ends the prayer, because prayer begins and ends with who you're talking to. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's just one sentence. It's a God-centered prayer in one Greek sentence. And friends, I just would want to urge you as we conclude this book that we would be reminded of what the rest of Hebrews says about the God to whom we're praying. You have access to the last and final revelatory word through Jesus. You have access to the creator of the heavens whom the angels, the mighty angels, breathtaking angels, the ones to whom the angels worship, you have access to that God. You have access because of Christ the pioneer of our salvation who was made perfect through suffering to the God who became flesh and died in our place to save us from the fear of death. You have access to the one who is superior to even Moses and superior to him like the one who's superior over the house because he owns the house, didn't just build the house. You have access to the sympathetic high priest There is no need for any further priests here on earth because we have a priest at the right hand of the Father in heaven. His name is Jesus. Therefore, approach the throne of grace, chapter 4 says, boldly in your time of need. The one who saves us for all time, he asks us to draw near to him. The mediator of the blood-bought covenant the one who put an end to all sacrifices, the one who for the joy set before him endured the cross, the one who suffered outside the gate so that he could sanctify the people by his own blood, and the one that will never leave you and never forsake you. That's who you pray to. We might leave the book of Hebrews, but I pray you never leave the God of Hebrews. And that in your prayers, even today and this week, you will be thinking much and praising God for the access he has given you through Christ to pray to God. Intimately, personally, approach the throne of grace. Draw near to him because of Christ. As Tim Keller has pointed out in his recent book on prayer, we know that God will hear us and answer us when we call because on one terrible day he did not answer Jesus when he called. The prayers of Jesus were given rejection that us sinners deserved so that our prayers could be received in the way that Christ's prayers deserved. So then to fail to pray 
is to not merely break some religious rule that you should pray every day. It is a failure to treat God as God and treasure the gospel. Do you understand what has been given to you, this gift of prayer? This is not rules for you to how to live a Christian life. This is a first step of prayer. Realize the God who you have access to, that you're praying to, and begin your prayers as has been modeled here with praise. One of the reasons why you may not be praying as often as you do is because you are not beginning with praise. You're not being warmed and reminded and rehearsing the gospel in your prayer. Your prayers are a bunch of to-do lists and things that you need God to fix and help in your life. And a lot of times when you just run through your list of help, 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 sometimes we end up getting more worried and more anxious and more burdened by all the concerns that we bring into our mind. Friends, start by bringing into your mind the God who you have access to, the one who has created, the one who has redeemed, and the one who has raised Jesus from the dead. I think it would be helpful if there was a regular moment in your day, week, life, or year, whatever, where you just stop and pause and say, I get to talk to that God. I get the privilege of access to that holy, righteous God. Or do I just sound like a flight attendant right now? Oh, yeah, yeah. We got access to the throne room of God through the blood of Jesus. Heard that one before. Okay, what's, what's a movie playing on the flight? What, what television programs are there today? No, friends, this is life or death vital, important instructions. Realize that you have great access to God, or, or have you failed to remember and believe that this God, this God has the ability to raise people from the dead. Can He not raise your situations from the dead? Remind yourself that He's the God who keeps His promises, and He kept His covenant by blood. Do you think He won't keep His promise? Start your prayer this way so that the burdens and anxieties that you want to present to God fall off because you're reminded of what sort of God you're praying to. The other thing that we realize in terms of our access to prayer is that because of Christ, when we pray and where we pray is now unlimited to us. Not just who we pray to. We have access to God. But we have access to God anytime, anywhere. There is no need for a temple. There is no need for a human priest. There is no need for a sacrifice. For those things throughout Hebrews, we have been told, have been done once and for all through the blood of Christ. The temple door is open, the priest is always available, and the sacrifice will always be pleasing to God. So friends, we have access to the great God of all of the universe and you have it anytime and anywhere. So pray constantly, pray continually, and even ask for prayer. Doesn't our author model that for you? Pray for us, pray for me, he says. Every once in a while, I hear some of you even say, oh, well, I don't have anything to pray for. No prayer requests. Or even sometimes we might feel so guilty, like, oh, don't pray for me, pray for something else that's more important. Friends, there is nothing that would be too little for God. 
whatever it is. We should come before him anytime, anywhere, and we should come with boldness. It's a failure to trust and believe in the gospel of God's grace and the blood of Jesus if you say, well, because of my sin, I'm going to run from God or not pray to God. It's because of your sin that you should especially run to God and find help. Were any of you stuck thinking, does God even listen to me? I've been asking again and again and again. I don't think he's heard my prayer. Luke 11 and Luke 18 are instructions from Jesus where he teaches us that if we think about the character of God as a father or as a righteous judge, it will help us to persist in prayer like the persistent widow that keeps begging the unjust judge for righteousness. So even the teachings of Jesus want us to center our prayers on the character of God. In fact, how did Jesus teach us to pray? Our Father who is in heaven. Let's start with the fatherhood of God and the heavenly nature of where God is on his throne, ruler, sovereign, Lord, creator, and then boldly and persistently come to him. Do you remember the passage I'm talking about in Luke 11? He says, what father would turn away his kid if they asked for some bread? Would the father give the kid, oh, have a rock instead? Or if they asked for some fish, give him a snake? No, no father would do that. Even if somebody, if they were a good friend, came in the middle of the night and started waking you up in the middle of the night, what, what kind of audacity would you have to be so rude? But if you were a good friend, if you were a good father, you would certainly get up, not be inconvenienced. God is like that. Inconvenience him. Beg him. Annoy him if you must. He is that kind of God, and he will be patient So boldly and persistently pray, pray, pray. That's in fact what this passage is saying. Chapter 18, I mean chapter 13, verse 18. Pray for us. You may not see it, but the continual verb tense here is pray repeatedly and continually. So friends, in the same way that he's asking for prayer, not just once, not just twice, but again and again and again. That should mark us as we pray. You have not, because you have asked not. Wasn't it Jesus who said, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open to you? You ever wonder if the reason why you're not experiencing some of the blessings and joys of this life and the life to come is because you've just never asked. Ask again and again and again. That's the first lesson we learn about prayer The A of the ABCs is the gospel opens to us the access for prayer to the great God of the universe anytime, anywhere. It's a wonderful, basic truth that I hope that you will apply even today. Secondly, the gospel provides the basis of our prayer. And by basis, I mean the motive or the reason, the purpose for why we should pray. And look here in our scripture for the reasons for our author's prayer. Verse 18, pray for us. And then you have the first reason. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. Now, I don't know when you read that if you say, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But I spent a lot of time trying to pour over these words right here. Pray for us. For. Here's the grounds. Here's the purpose, the basis, the reason why I want prayers. 
because I am confident that I have a clear conscience. Huh? Right? Like, read that again. Pray for us because I have a clear conscience. But then you see a little bit more in his heart. He desires to act honorably in all things. And one of the problems when we read Scripture is that sometimes we get stuck, like maybe I did, where we just isolate one verse. I think if we just read back like I started in verse 17, we might better understand what he's trying to say here. Verse 17, obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage for you. So this man who's writing and preaching this message is a leader, and he's telling them, the leaders must keep watch over your soul and give an account to Almighty King Jesus. So we need prayer. You see how that flows now? So pray for us, because our desire, for our desire is to have a clear conscience, and we have a clear conscience that we have been faithful to lead you well. And our desire is that we would act honorably in all things. The word honorably there, if you go back to verse 7, is the, the same sort of word that's being used in verse 7 of chapter 13 that says, consider the outcome of the way of life and imitate the faith of your leaders. So their desire is that they would have a life that is worthy of being imitated and the outcome of it would be worthy of following. So pray for us that we would be these kind of people with a clear conscience so you would have leaders that you could follow. You see the, the desire here? You see the longings in his heart as he's explaining what he wants prayer for? Look at verse 19. I urge you all the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. He wants to be with them, which we'll speak more in a second, but I want you to see the basis of his prayer, the motivation or the reason for his praying is to honor Christ, and then in verse 21, to do his will and to be pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to the glory of his name. In other words, we do not merely pray so we get more things or for God to just fix stuff in our life or change our circumstances. We pray because we want God to be great. We pray because we want God to be glorified, honored, and for his will to be superior to all of our wills. In fact, go back to the Lord's Prayer again. Our Father, who art in heaven, what's the first prayer request of the Lord's Prayer? Hallowed be your name. That's, that's not a statement. That is a request. May your name be hallowed, be holy, be set apart and made much of. So our Father who is in heaven, Jesus teaches us, first thing we want, be great, God. May your name be great in all the nations in the world. That's what we want more than anything, first and foremost. The motive, the basis, why we pray, what we want. Your will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Your will, not my will. Is that the basis of your prayers? And more than anything, you want God and his glory and his fame and his goodness and his will and his righteousness, or do you just want what you want? One of the most terrifying teachings on prayer is from James chapter 4. It says, the reason why God's not answering your prayers is because you ask with the wrong motive. This is an important teaching then, isn't it? I'm not a flight attendant anymore. Wake up, brothers and sisters. The reason why your prayers are not answered is because you ask with the wrong motive. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. So what should be our motive? Well, look at the motive here. I want to be honorable 
before God because I know I'll be accountable to him. I want to please him. I want to do his will. In some, as Jesus put it, I want to hallow the name of Christ above all things in my life. Not my will, but his be done. A.W. Tozer said, sometimes I say to God, God, if you do not ever answer another prayer while I live on this earth, I will still worship you as long as I live in the ages to come for what you have already done for me. God has already put me so far in debt that if I were to live another million millenniums, I could never repay him for what he's done for me. Are you starting to see? The motive of our prayer is not so that you just get more stuff and answer all the desires that you want in your flesh, but that the gospel changes your heart and your motives and gives you a new basis for how you pray because of what God has already done for you, you should be so overwhelmed that if he never answered another prayer for you for the rest of your life, you'd be so satisfied with this God. God will not give you a snake if you ask for a fish. He will not give you a rock if you ask for bread, but he also will not give you a snake if you ask for a snake. Sometimes the reason why God doesn't give us what we ask for is because it's not good for us. We ask with the wrong motive because we think this is what I really want and what I really need. Ah, friend, we're so nearsighted. I love what Tim Keller said in his prayer, his book on prayer. God will either give us what we ask for or he will give us what we would have asked for if we knew what he knew. Let me say that one more time because it's helpful. God will either give us what we ask for or he will give us what we would have asked for if we knew what he knew. This is why we should have the basis of all of our prayers, not my will but yours be done. If we can't say that from the bottom of our hearts, then we will not know the peace that should rule our hearts by knowing that God's in control and otherwise we will try and make everything in our life revolve around us. And that would be chaotic. Maybe you're experiencing that chaos now. Submit yourself in the basis of all your prayers and desires to the one to whom knows all things and knows what's best for you. Not my will, but yours be done. That's the second lesson and in instruction. We have access to God. We have a new basis for why and what we should pray. And then let's thirdly get to how the gospel transforms the content of our prayer. Access, basis, content. Do you ever think about what you pray for? Not just why you're asking for it, but what you're actually asking for? Does it look anything like what you see prayed for in the Bible? It's a simple thing to do. Observe over the course of a week or a month the things that you pray for, especially if you jot them down in a journal or write them. And then take that list and go through the prayers of the Bible, especially the New Testament. In contrast, do the things that you ask for and pray for match with the things that Scripture prays for? The people inspired by the Holy Spirit, do your prayers look like theirs? Well, let's just look at this example. First, we see that he says, pray for us. We don't know necessarily what he's asking for, but it seems like what I was explaining earlier is that Pray for us leaders that we would be honorable. Then, second thing he asks for in verse 19, he asks with a bit of urgency. I urge you, 
to earnestly pray that I would be restored to you. Then we see his example of prayer in verse 21. He prays for the equipping that everything that you would need to do God's will would be yours. Equipping. That's the main verb in that sentence. That one sentence that he prays, the main center of what he's asking is the equipping to do the will of God. So, is that what your prayers look like? Is there anything you can learn from looking at these prayers that you can then apply to your life? Well, first, let me just say this. I would guess if we were to look at a lot of our prayers, they would be circumstantial, they would be physical needs, and they would be about the day-to-day whatever's going on. So I'm sick, I'm hungry, I need this or that. Now, before I make you feel like that's a bad thing to pray for, realize that, again, the Lord's Prayer says, give us today our daily bread. And I think that that, in part, means that we should ask God to supply even the basic needs of our life, even the circumstantial things of our day-to-day lives. We should pray daily for the daily bread for God's provision. And here we actually see that modeled in verse 19. You see more of a circumstantial prayer. I urge you the more earnestly to pray so that I could be restored to you. There's something that's prohibiting this man to get to this group of people, and he's asking for God to intervene so he can get there sooner. That's just asking for God intervene in this situation. One author uh, in a commentary says that the way he writes this, it should be obvious to us that he's asking with such urgency and earnestness that if they were to not pray, he believes that the prayer, that the lack of prayer would prohibit him from getting there sooner. So th- there's a belief and a faith that God, in fact, does work in history, in the day-to-day moments of life, and uses our prayers to change circumstances for the good of his people. Do you believe that? Or do you think prayer is just about you being with God? Or do you think that prayer can actually change circumstances? And it can actually do something. The author here, I think, gives us an example that he believes prayer does, in fact, change things. Or as James says later, after saying that the reason why we don't get prayer is because of our bad motives, he then encourages us in James chapter 5 and says, prayer is powerful and effective. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective and can change circumstances, little things or big things. We naturally, I think, pray for circumstantial change, don't you think? When you look back, yeah, probably pray for like, I'm sick, I want to get better, I need more money, help me with a new job change, please get rid of so-and-so, they're annoying me. I mean, just we pray for all kinds of circumstantial things in our life. But the gospel, you see, I think anyone, you could be here today and you could be not a Christian and you'd probably say, yeah, every once in a while I pray. I've read statistics and polls, and even atheists say that in times of great need, they pray. So like everybody prays, and a lot of times we pray about circumstantial things, but Christians that have been transformed by the gospel, they pray about something more than just circumstances. They pray about a new heart, about spiritual, eternal things, about faith, about the knowledge of God's will, about discernment to understand good from evil. They pray for wisdom. That's in fact what we see here too, isn't it? Not just circumstances in verse 19, but in verse 21, we see equip them so that they will do good and be pleasing in God's sight to his glory forever and ever. Do you see how prayer, transformed by the gospel, 
starts to look a little different than just, hey, get me out of prison. And the reason I bring that up is because one of the most frequent examples of prayer in the New Testament is given to us from Paul, who wrote 13 of the New Testament books. So you've got 27 books in the New Testament, 13 by Paul, and you've got a handful of them that were written while he was in prison. And you know what's interesting about all of those letters? Not once does he ask to be released from prison. But instead, he models for us prayer by praying for the power of God's love to be known in the hearts of the Ephesians. Or the knowledge of God's will to be given to the church in Colossae. When you look at the prayers of Paul, you will be amazed at how little he prays for circumstantial change and how often he prays for your faith, your heart, and your knowledge of God's character and love to grow. Has your prayers been transformed by the gospel? Where you start to now see that the physical material world, as much as we need prayer for that, sickness, day-to-day, job, situations, family, There's something bigger and greater, something eternal, something that has lasting effects forever. The spiritual, I think that that's one of the things we need to even see in the prayer request of his circumstantial prayers. Look back at verse 19 again and ask yourself, is this just a a small little thing that he's asking for prayer, that they would be brought back together? Or is there something of significance here? I urge you, he's pretty passionate about this. He wants them to earnestly pray that they would be restored. So yes, I think there's a sense to which that's physical, circumstantial, kind of day-to-day things, that God could intervene and relieve whatever opposition's in the way to get these people back together. But here's the deeper thing. Could it be that he is so longing to encourage them in their faith that that's why he wants to get back together with them? So in essence, even his circumstantial prayers are actually spiritual prayers? I would beg to uh, argue that yes, they are. For in fact, what we see not just here, but all through the New Testament is repeated examples that letters that are being written are not primary in the minds of the authors. You following me here? Writing letters to a group of people is the reason why you have a lot of the Bible before you. Most of them are letters that were sent. But in a lot of those letters, they say, I'm sorry I can't be with you. I want to be with you face to face. I want to be with you in person. The significance of this might be lost in a day of technology where we don't do a lot of face to face. Where the generation that's coming up of children and teenagers have no idea how to communicate except through text messaging or tweeting or Instagramming. You understand what sort of society that we're living in where face-to-face personal ministry is just not valued like it probably should be. And that's why I think it's all the more urgent that we see the urgency of his desire for them to be reunited together and therefore all the more diligently strive that Embassy Church would be a church that values face-to-face ministry. Friends, I don't want to like be the sort of church where we just go around and say what's wrong with all the other churches, but can I just say that as your pastor, as long as I'm here, 
and your elders, I think, are in complete agreement with this. They can give a hearty amen if they're in agreement. It would never be our desire for us to do something where a pastor's face is on a screen and you would never really know your pastors or leaders. There's no sense to which we see that in any way being a faithful model here in Scripture. What we see in Scripture is that when they can't be face-to-face, they want to be face-to-face, and that this is just second best, and if they have to settle for it, then they'll write a letter. But man, do they want to be with them face-to-face, because people that want to do ministry the way Christians do ministry, do it the way Jesus does ministry. Jesus does ministry by coming down face-to-face. God did not just send us a letter or a book. Some of people think, oh, Christianity is just about a book. No, Christianity is about a Jesus. It's about a person who came down on the earth face to face. So therefore, our ministry should model the ministry of Jesus, where we spend time together in person. Now, I'm not saying I'm disappointed by all the wonderful advances of technology, that we can Skype with missionaries overseas, that we can receive letters instantly through email and text. But that's settling, friends. That's not New Testament ministry. The mark of ministry here at this church, my hope and prayer would be one-on-one, group meetings, meeting on Sunday morning, face-to-face. It's in fact this book, Hebrews chapter 10, that says do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Don't think that, oh, well, I could just listen to the sermon later, and that's, that's church. <sighs> Friend, your view of church is so off. That is not church. That's just listening to a sermon. You could listen to any sermon from any church anywhere. But do you have a pastor who knows you and knows your congregation and says, I, based on reading God's word, want to apply this word to you because I know you? Have you ever had a discipling relationship where someone's sitting down across from a table from you and they say, look, based on God's word, this is what I think would be most helpful in your life? That's when things start to really click and change. You're going to keep feeding off of the worldly consumer goods of Christianity and just say, well, I can go to church in my pajamas. What do I need to actually go to the building for? You're missing it. That's not New Testament Christianity. That's not Jesus' ministry. It's face-to-face, in person. There's so many things that we miss when we just communicate through letter or email and miscommunication and misunderstandings. And we could go on and on about those things, but hopefully you see the point here in this prayer. I urgently want to be with you because I want to encourage you. So even if you never preach a sermon, never get up and read a scripture or pray a prayer in public, and if the only ministry you have on a regular basis is your very presence here in the pews, you should realize how valuable that presence is. I think so many of you probably don't realize how valuable your very presence is in the church on a weekly basis. And this is not some guilt trip to say, see, quit sleeping in on church. I want to just elevate the beauty of face-to-face ministry where we want to be together. And the reason for that is because of the gospel, of what Christ has done to transform a community of people that love each other. So, long-distance relationships, they're never that much fun, are they? I remember Christine and I were dating early on. And I drove three hours each way to be with her for 45 minutes before I had to get home before curfew. You do a lot of crazy things if you really love someone because you want to see them. You want to be with them. And if a church is first and foremost marked by its love for one another, then friends, this should be what marks our church. 
is not just that we pray that we would be together, but that we would in fact be together as often as we can. Let's not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage each other all the more and spur each other on toward love and good deeds with smiles, holy kisses. Yeah, holy kisses, you know what I'm talking about? Greet one another with a holy kiss. That's a command in the New Testament. So it just means probably give them a big hug. That's the translation to the 21st century. If you all start kissing each other, we might have to readdress that issue. <laughs> so, the content of our prayer, it should be transformed by the gospel. You see the way the gospel has transformed? I urge all the more earnestly that we would be restored all the sooner. I want to be with you. I love you. The gospel makes people love one another, especially people that used to not love each other. That's the beauty of the gospel. I love looking out. I have the best seat in all the house to look out and see that there's a bunch of people that have different ethnicities, ages, backgrounds, interests. And what the gospel does is create a community of people that love each other and want to be together and encourage each other. Even when the world would say, why would so-and-so meet up with so-and-so? Why would you spend time with them? What we do in the world is meet with cliques, with people that are just like us, same age, same ethnicity, same interests. What the church is a gathering of people that have one similar interest, and his name is Jesus. So the gospel transforms the way we pray and what we pray. There's your ABCs, and there's our final message of Hebrews. But I think it would be a little too short to just stop there. Like I said, I don't want us to finish Hebrews and say, well, we've gone on and moved on from it. My prayer and hope is that we will always have the God and the Christ of Hebrews on our hearts and on our lips. And therefore, we will never be done studying the way that Jesus is the one who passed through the heavens, seated at the right hand, and tells us to boldly come to his throne. Jesus, the one who prayed. Remember this? Chapter 5, verse 7. Refresh your memory. Hebrews 5, 7. Jesus earnestly prayed with tears and loud cries for you. Jesus, the one who now intercedes in chapter 7, because he is at the right hand of the Father, he never stops praying for his church and his bride. That's the Jesus of the book of Hebrews, who calls us to pray in our time of need, who prayed for us with tears and loud cries, who intercedes and never stops praying. Friends, the book of Hebrews is telling you there's one final great priest, one great final word, one great final Moses. Fix your eyes on him. See him on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. He even prayed for his enemies in his worst and darkest day. Let's fix our eyes on him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that right now we get to pray to you. I pray that these words, God, that you would fan the flame, you will stir the hearts, and you will help us hear them afresh. You are the creator, God, and we're so thankful that you have opened the access through the blood of Jesus that we could pray to you. What a privilege, what an opportunity, what a gift. God, we want to thank you that you can change our hearts through the gospel to give us new motives and new basis for our prayer.
Thank you that you even instruct us on how we can pray for things that last and are eternal and that really matter. God, we are so incredibly thankful today. Even if you never answer any of these prayers again, as Tozer said, even for a millennia upon millennium, you have already given us so much in Jesus. We want to give you thanks in his name. Amen. Well, one way for us to remember Jesus Christ is to take the